The sermon text for today is found in Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 31. In the blue, you can find this passage in the Blue Pew Bible on page 1540. Listen as I read God's word. People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and blessed them. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your mother and father. Teacher, he declared, all these things I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Then Peter spoke up, We have left everything to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Here ends the reading. Good morning, everyone. Hope you're doing well this morning. My name is John. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, I get to serve as the lead pastor here at Elmwood. As we look at this passage, I want to invite you to begin by joining me for a word of prayer.
God, we give you thanks that you are unchanging. We all come into this place today and we come from different life circumstances. Some of us have had a week that is filled with joy. Some of it filled with difficulty, disappointment. Lord, you know exactly where each one of us comes from this week. We thank you that you love us and that you desire to meet with us. We thank you that by your spirit, you give each and every one of us exactly what we need in this moment. And so as we come to this passage, even if we've heard this read and feel like it has nothing to do with us or there's nothing really in here for us, it doesn't really meet our needs this morning, uh, we trust and believe that you can and will instruct us. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would be at work among us now. We ask that you would help us see what's here, that you would help us to see and believe the gospel and trust Jesus and leave your changed people. We ask it in his name. Amen. For a while now, we have been in a series in the book of Mark, and we've been exploring together what it means to live as disciples or apprentices of the man Jesus. And as we come to this passage this morning, and we see these two stories about children coming to Jesus and then this rich man coming to Jesus, as we look at these two passages side by side, we can see that they are linked together by the phrase, the kingdom of God. When we look at this passage together, what we're going to see this morning is it's showing us something of a picture of the requirements of entering the kingdom of God. This isn't all these verses do, but the angle we're going to sort of look at this from this morning and the vantage point we're going to take is we're going to look at these verses and see them showing us uh, the answer to the question, what does it require to enter the kingdom of God? What kind of people can get in? What needs to be true of us if we are to be people who are members of the kingdom of God? Uh, The idea of requirements for entrance is not something that is unfamiliar to us. Right? If we look around, we see this kind of stuff all over the place. Just uh, the other week, our family was at the Wisconsin Dells, and as we were going around the different activities in the water park, there were some that were specifically designed for small children, and then there were some that had the sign that said, you have to be at least 48 inches tall to ride you know, the hurricane, or if you're not that tall, you have to be accompanied by an adult if you want to ride the mammoth slide. And so there was uh, requirements for entry into those Uh, different activities. If you are uh, maybe wanting to take part in an AP class, there's likely some sort of requirements that are there for you in AP entrance exam you have to take to demonstrate that you like have what it takes to survive in that particular class. Uh, Colleges, right? Like if you, if you are going to, if you aspire to go to Harvard University and your GPA is like 1.8, don't bother submitting an application, okay? Because you know that the requirements to get into a college like that are uh, quite steep. Uh, When you submit a resume to any company, in a way what you're doing is you are giving a kind of proof that you are qualified to enter. Because every single one of those job postings has requirements and expectations. And so if you're applying to be a software engineer and you went to technical college for plumbing, Probably not a good fit because you don't meet the requirements to enter into that specific position. There's all sorts of places where you can't get in unless you are a certain age 
There's all sorts of places where you need to have certain government or military classification or clearance in order to enter. So this idea of having uh, requirements to enter a place is something that we are all familiar with. And so we're going to think this morning about what does it require to enter the kingdom of God? Now, you may be here and thank you to yourself. Uh, this doesn't seem like all, it's all that relevant to me. And maybe for some of you, you say to yourself, I've followed Jesus for a very long time. And I am already a member of God's kingdom. So why do I need to hear a message about what it looks like and what's required of me to enter the kingdom of God? I'm already here. Part of why this is important for us is because what we see here is not only the kind of people that we need to be just to enter, but what we see is what kingdom people are like. So these entrance requirements are not just like a, you know, you don't just like move on past these things once you get into the kingdom of God. These things that are required for your entrance into the kingdom of God are the same things that will characterize our lives more and more deeply as we follow Jesus. And so for all of us, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, in your walk with Jesus today, there is something relevant and important for you in this question. What does it require to enter the kingdom of God? So let's look at both these passages and see the answer to that question. And the first answer we see as Jesus welcomes the children is we see that entrance into the kingdom of God requires a recognition of our complete dependence on God. It requires a recognition of our total and complete and utter dependence on God for all things. So in this scene, uh, we see parents, we see people are bringing their children to Jesus so that he could lay his hands on them and he could pronounce a blessing over them. This is something that for us in our modern context, we don't really have much of a category for this kind of thing. It may seem sort of unusual to us, the whole idea. But this was something that in the first century world, in the Jewish community in particular, and even before that, this was a very common thing that uh, people would do, is they would seek out a religiously uh, prominent person in the community. They would seek out a well-known or a great teacher or rabbi, and they would bring their children to that person so that that person could pronounce a blessing on their child. And so that's what we see the disciples, um, we see these people doing here. And of course, we're not told how many people are coming. We're not told how many children are there. But what we do know is that the disciples, they've like reached the tipping point, right? Where the disciples, all these people are coming and they're bringing children and everyone's wanting access to Jesus's presence. And the disciples are like, whoa, 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 hold on. We've just about had enough of this. And so they start turning people away. They, they start rebuking these people who are bringing their children to Jesus for him to bless them. That's what they're doing. And what they do here in rebuking these people and sending them away is almost exactly what they were doing just a few stories ago where we find the disciples come to Jesus and they're sort of bragging saying, hey, you know, we found a man who was casting out demons in your name and we told him to stop. And what they've done is they've set themselves up as gatekeepers of the kingdom of God. They said, well, he's not, he's not one of us. He's not following us. So therefore, we told him to stop using your name and authority. And they're functioning as gatekeepers, as the ones who get to determine who gets to use Jesus' authority and who doesn't. And then here, they do the exact same kind of thing, but this time they're not blocking access to Jesus' name or his authority They are blocking access and have set themselves up as a gatekeeper of the presence of Jesus. 
So in the minds of the disciples, in their minds, they have, they alone have exclusive access to Jesus's authority and to Jesus's presence. And so they start turning people away because they, after all, are the ones who get to determine who gets to use Jesus's name and authority. They're the ones who get to determine who gets to come into Jesus's presence or not. And Jesus says to them, uh, we read that Jesus became, uh, he was ticked off. Okay, Jesus was angry, says he was indignant, and he said to them in verse 14, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. So in his rebuke, he says to his disciples, the kingdom of God belongs to people like these. To people like this. And if you're ever going to enter the kingdom, in fact, you need to become like a child yourself. Now, what Jesus is not saying here is he's not saying that children are the only ones who have access to the kingdom of God. What he's saying is that only people like children have access to the kingdom of God. And the question is, okay, well, what in the world does that mean? <laughs> that we should become like children. Uh, doesn't mean we should be childish but we should be like children. Well, what does that mean? When Jesus says the kingdom of God belongs to such as these, people like this, I think what he's referring to here is the social status of children. Children in the first century world had zero social status. Childhood in the ancient world was viewed as a kind of no man's land. It was something you needed to get through, you needed to survive through, until you could reach adulthood where your real meaningful life of significance actually began. So children didn't have any social status. Children were sort of like the, the lowest people on the you know, social order. And so uh, Jesus is saying, you realize that the kingdom of God belongs to people just like that. The people that you say are nobodies, that is exactly the kind of people that my kingdom is for. So children have zero social status, and Jesus says the kingdom belongs to people just like that. And when he says that a person has to become like a child to enter the kingdom, I think what he's referring to here is that children are completely and utterly and hopelessly dependent all the time for everything. Right? If you've had children, small children, if you uh, have ever spent time around small children, you know that every single thing a child has is because they've been given it as a gift. Children don't earn anything. Children don't really contribute much to anything. In fact, they just sort of like suck resources out of you, you know? So it's like children are not like contributors. Children are totally and utterly and completely dependent upon their parents for everything. Everything a child has is because someone gave it to them as a gift. And Jesus is saying, you have to become like a child in that you recognize your complete and utter dependence. When Jesus uses children as his sort of word picture here, this illustration of those who the kingdom belongs to, he's flipping uh, the world of the first century upside down. And he's shattering the paradigm that the disciples have about who's who. Okay, so just notice here, the disciples, they start sending people away. They start sending people and children away because in their minds, Jesus has more important people to be hanging out with. 
Jesus doesn't have unlimited time, and his ministry, has, you know, he's trying to get things done, and you don't get things done by spending your time with a bunch of nobodies who can't contribute anything. So they think Jesus has better things to do with his time and better people to hang out with, but Jesus welcomed the children. And then not only this, the very next thing we see is that Jesus turned away a rich man. This is the kind of person, this rich man, was the exact kind of person that the disciples, like, they are just like drooling when they see this man come to Jesus and they're like, you know what will be great for your ministry, Jesus? It's someone like that who's got all this money and resources. Just think of what he could do for the kingdom of God with all those resources. And this man comes, we find out that he's, he's not only very wealthy, he's followed God's instruction. He is uh, religiously devout. This is exactly the kind of person that Jesus ought to be rubbing shoulders with and he turns them away. And the children, who are the nobodies who contribute nothing, Jesus welcomed them. And so you see how he's just shattering everyone's paradigms of like, well, who should Jesus be spending his time with? (laughs) Entering the kingdom of God requires we come to God like a child. It It requires that we come to God like children It requires a recognition that we can offer nothing of value to God and God does not need us for anything. (laughs) I hate to break it to you, and maybe you already know this. God is not impressed with your religious activity. right? God is not impressed with any of your good works. He's not impressed with your church attendance. He's not impressed with how much money you give. He's not impressed with how much you serve. He's not impressed with any of the good things you can do for him. It doesn't mean he doesn't care about those things. He does. But those things are not the basis of his love for you. He's not impressed by our religious activity. We, we bring nothing to God that he would look at us and say, wow, this person, I really I need this person on my team because of what this person brings. None of us have anything to benefit God or his kingdom in and of ourselves. And more than this, God himself does not need us for anything. God does not need our worship. He does not need our praise. God did not create us because there was an us-sized hole in his heart and he couldn't stand the thought of eternity without us. God is self-sufficient in and of himself. He needs nothing from us. It doesn't mean we're not valuable. It doesn't mean any of that. God does not need us and we bring nothing of value to him. And that is good news. may not seem like good news on the surface. You may be saying, can you tell me how that's good news? (laughs) It's good news because the Bible describes God using language of he is our heavenly father. We, like dependent little children, contribute nothing, we don't earn anything, and yet God is our heavenly Father who delights to give us every good thing that we need. The good news is that God doesn't need us, and yet because his heart overflows with love and compassion, he has made us, turned us into his children, and given us all the good things that we need. And so we come to God, not just for the first time, in a position of complete dependence upon him. But the longer we stay in the kingdom of God, the longer we live here, the more we recognize the dependence that we actually have. And not only do we just live with a recognition of how much we desperately need God, 
we also delight in the fact that we need God because when we think about that for like a fraction of a second and we see what God has done for us in Jesus, our minds explode with glory thinking about how God has given us his son and caused us to be his children. We've done nothing to earn it and yet God simply loves us because God loves us. And so this is what it requires to enter the kingdom of God is a recognition of our complete and utter dependence upon God for everything. The second thing we see here as we look at the story of the rich man is that what's required to enter the kingdom of God is a willingness to give up everything to follow Jesus. A willingness to give up anything and everything to follow and to possess Jesus. So in the second scene, there's this rich man who comes up to Jesus and he falls down on his knees before him and he says, good teacher, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? We don't know much about this man, but what seems apparent from his, the way he approached Jesus and his physical posture is that he's in a place of a somewhat existential crisis, it looks like. You know, this is the kind of person who you would say he's got everything going for him. He's wealthy. He doesn't have any like physical, material needs. He has more than he needs. He can enjoy all sorts of good things in life. And he's a very religiously devout person who's given his life to following the, the instruction of the Lord. And so you'd say, like, this guy's got it all. And yet he comes to Jesus from this place of saying, what do I have to do to inherit life in God's presence in the age to come? What else do I lack? He still lives with this kind of inner angst. And so he asks Jesus this question, what do I have to do? And Jesus then responds in verse 18 by saying, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Jesus' response here has been troubling to many followers of Jesus. As you can imagine, maybe you find yourself here this morning being like, okay, so why did Jesus say that? (laughs) Uh, Part of why this is troubling for us is because what we, here's what we hear Jesus saying. This isn't what Jesus is saying, but what we hear Jesus saying is, God alone is good, so why are you calling me good? And what it appears on the surface is it looks like Jesus is rejecting the title of good that he knows belongs to God only, right? God is the ultimate source of all goodness. And so Jesus is like, well, why are you calling me good? I'm not good. That's what it appears as though Jesus is saying. But I don't think that's what he is saying. And when we come to passages like this that may cause us to sort of like have like a sort of crisis of our own and be like, well, I don't like, how do we make sense of this? Uh, The two options are either we can like throw out everything we know the Bible says about Jesus, bad choice, (laughs) or we can say, there's something else going on here that I just don't understand because he can't be saying that he's not God, right? So let me just give you my best attempt at sort of uh, understanding what's happening here. Uh, Jesus in these verses, he's not denying his divine identity. What he's doing is he's probing into this man's notion of goodness, so notice how this, Jesus didn't stop by saying, why do you call me good? Only God is good. He went on to say, you know what the commands are. And he lists all these commands from the Ten Commandments, from the law of God. And so in other words, Jesus is saying to this man, you know what God, who is the source of all goodness, has commanded. 
And so he's, he's probing into this man's definition, his notion of goodness, and he's actually setting him up for what he's going to tell him that he lacks by getting this man to, to, to recognize and, and to just own the fact, like, yeah, I've done all the things. And he's setting him up to realize, you have not done all the things. There's still one thing you lack. So Jesus here is not denying his divine identity. He's probing into this man's notion of goodness. And as he does so, the man responds after Jesus says, well, you know what all the commandments are. And then he says in verse 20, teacher, all these I have kept since I was a boy. And then Jesus does something that may confuse us. Jesus looked at this man and loved him. What we might expect Jesus to do is just like crush this man to say, who do you think you are? There is no one righteous, not even one. What we might expect Jesus to say is when this guy says, well, I've kept all the commands, we might expect Jesus to say, don't you know that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God? Right? We'd expect him to like just be like, no, 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 no. You're, you're not as good as you think you are. But that's not what Jesus does. Jesus looked at this man and it says he loved him. And part of the reason why we, you know, this might be puzzling is because our assumption when we read this man say, I've done all the commands, is we assume that this man is claiming he's basically lived a sinless life. That's not, what he's, that's not at all what's happening, right? So God gave his instruction where he says, here's all the commands that you're to follow. Here's all the ways that you're supposed to live in obedience to me. Within his instruction, he gave provision for when you fail, here's what you do to make the relationship right. And so when he says, I've, ke- I've kept all the commands, he's not saying, I lived a perfect life. What he's saying is, every time that I've known I've failed, I've gone about making reconciliation with God the way that God told me to do it in his instruction. So he's saying, I followed all of God's instruction to the best of my ability for how to live and then made it right when I didn't. So that's what he's saying. He's not claiming to have lived a sinless life. So that's what he's, that's what he's uh, identifying here. And Jesus, when he says, you know, when this man says, well, I've kept all the commands. I've kept those since I was a child. Jesus looked at him with compassion. Jesus looked at this man and loved him. And my suspicion, I don't have, a, I don't have proof of this because it's just in writing, but my suspicion is that Jesus spoke to him very compassionately and looked at him and basically said, you're on the right track. But there is one thing you do lack. You need to liquidate all of your assets and give the money to the poor and then come follow me. And when Jesus gave that instruction to him, you could see his body changed. And maybe inside he was thinking anything but that. His face fell. His, his demeanor totally changed. And he walked away from Jesus sad and chose not to follow Jesus. So what exactly is it that this man lacks? He doesn't lack religious fervor. He doesn't lack religious or spiritual compliance to what God has commanded. 
He doesn't lack a desire to live in obedience to God. So what exactly is it that he does lack? Because Jesus tells us he's still lacking something. It's not that he lacks selling all of his money, uh, giving all, selling all of his stuff and giving the money away. He lacks what's underneath that. What's underneath that that this man lacks is a willingness to give up everything to follow Jesus. That's what this man lacks. He lacks a willingness to give up everything to follow Jesus, and he lacks a heart that treasures Jesus over material possessions. That's what he lacks. Right? Jesus did not and does not give this same exact command to everyone who's a follower of Jesus. Okay, so Jesus, there's nowhere in the Bible that says, if you're a follower of Jesus, sell all your stuff, give your money away, and then go follow him. In fact, we read the New Testament, and you see there were lots of wealthy, prominent people, namely uh, women, who gave of their resources to support Jesus and his ministry. We know that the disciples like, had boats and wives and families and houses and all of that stuff. So Jesus did not and does not require all of us who are his followers to liquidate our assets and give our stuff away. What he's doing is he gave this command to this man in order to expose what was inside of his heart. He gave this command to this man in order to expose this man's love for money. You see, Jesus gave him a choice. He said, you can have treasure with God or you can have material possessions. And he made the wrong choice. He chose material possessions and earthly wealth over God himself who's standing in front of him in human flesh in Jesus. He said, no, thank you. I'll keep my money. And he walked away and that's why he was sad. He made the wrong choice. At the heart of it, Jesus is asking him to give away all of his possessions. What it exposed was that all of his religious activity and all of his devotion to God were not really about God at all. He was willing to follow God, but on his own terms. In other words, he was willing to follow God's commands as long as there were parts of his life that could remain unchanged. He basically was like, okay, now you've pushed too far. I was willing to follow God in all of these ways, but when you asked me to give up all my money and have a change in my standard of living, I'm not willing to go there. And so that was the thing that pushed him over the line where he said, you know, I'm just, I'm not willing to go there. I'm willing to do all sorts of stuff. I'm willing to open up God to have control over all these parts of my life, but not this one over here. And so it exposed that really he was willing to follow God as long as parts of his life could remain unchanged. The reason that he chose money over Jesus was because he was using bad math. I'm not talking about like common core math. <laughs> I'm talking about like bad earthly human math that only exists on one plane of what we can see and experience here and now. He was using bad math because he was doing a cost analysis benefit, right? Wasn't he? Okay, like what are the, you know, here's what he told me to do. I can have 
earthly material wealth or I can have treasure with God. And he's, he's, he's doing this calculation in his mind. And what he thought was that by giving up his money, he would have less. That's what he believed. And in the sort of earthly only human plane of what we can see and experience, the zero-sum game that we live in, in that way of thinking, yeah, he was right. Giving all my money away means I have a life of less. But in God's economy, the way that you find your life is by what? Is by losing your life. He wasn't doing, he wasn't thinking in terms of kingdom economics or kingdom math. He was just looking at what's in my pocketbook and if I give this away, I'm going to have less. And Jesus is like, sure, you'll have less material wealth, but you know what you will have? You will have God himself and you will have treasure with God. You are, maybe you do have less material possessions. Maybe your life is less comfortable. Maybe you can take less trips or vacations or do the things that you really like to do with your money. Maybe you have less of those things, but you're storing up for yourself a different kind of wealth altogether that is so unlike the pieces of coin and paper that we deal with down here. Saying you are building up treasure with God. You're building up treasure in heaven. And so because he was using this uh, faulty math, (laughs) he made the wrong choice. This man was unwilling to give up everything, so he walked away sad. What this shows us is that what is required to enter the kingdom of God is a willingness to give up everything to follow Jesus. A willingness to give up anything and everything. It doesn't mean that God's always going to call us to do that. Sometimes he might call us to give up lots of things materially. Sometimes he might not. But in order to enter the kingdom of God, we need to possess a baseline willingness to say, God, everything is on the table. Every single thing you've given me is something you've given me in the first place. It doesn't belong to me. And however you want me to apportion these resources, I'm willing to do it. It may be painful. It may be difficult. There may be inner wrestlings with that. And, you know, I don't want to obey, but I'm going to do it because I know I should. You know, there may be wrestlings with that. But it's a baseline willingness to give up everything to follow Jesus. When we give our lives to Jesus in the first place, when we enter the kingdom of God, what we're signing up for is not like a one-time surrender. Where it's like, here now I'm giving up everything for God. And it's just like, well, glad I'm past that. I did that once. No, what we are getting ourselves into by following Jesus is we are entering into a continual process of giving up everything to follow Jesus. Giving up our will, our desires, our plans, and whatever else God may call us to give up. That's what we're entering into, is a continual process of saying, Jesus, whatever it is you're asking me to give up to follow you, I'm willing to do it. And the reason we do it is because he's worth it. Not merely out of compliance, not merely out of religious duty, gritting our teeth doing it, but we do so because Jesus is worth it. This is what it requires to enter the kingdom of God. It requires a recognition 
of our complete dependence on God, and it requires a willingness to give up everything to follow Jesus. As we come to the communion table today, and as we think about the cross, and as we take the broken body and shed blood of Jesus in our hands, what we've been talking about here today becomes, comes into a little bit clearer focus. As you come forward and receive the broken body and shed blood of Jesus, you are coming forward in recognition of your total dependence on God, that you need him for everything. What the cross shows us and what the communion table shows us is the lengths not just to which God was willing to go, but the lengths to which God had to go in order to accomplish our salvation. Because our hearts are corrupted by sin and we're tainted by idolatry to the core of our being, we could not be saved merely by good advice. What we need is a changed heart. And this is what God has done for us in the person of Jesus and the the communion table and the cross shows us. You are utterly dependent upon God and look at how he's provided for you. Likewise, as we come to the communion table and receive the broken body of Jesus, what we see is that he is worth giving up everything to gain because those elements themselves are a demonstration that he did that exact same thing for us. We give up everything to gain him because he's already done that for us. He's already given up everything in order to gain us. And so we live as a joyful response to that by receiving Christ and then by living our lives with a willingness to give up everything to follow Jesus. As we come to the table, let me just leave a few moments of silence for confession, for reflection. If there's something that maybe you're heard this morning that you're thinking about that's sort of stuck with you, I want to leave just a few moments for you to think about that and to bring that before God. And then we will come to the communion table and we will celebrate the ways that God has provided for us in Jesus. So take a few moments of silence.